So welcome, everyone. I'm delighted to have a chance to converse with these folks up here. And Keynote Conference has been one of the highlights of Asbury since I first arrived here in 1997. I just think it's an amazing, amazing um, gathering of thought and people in worship every year. And so I'm delighted we could press through COVID and make it happen. So our panelists are going to be discussing three questions for us today, kind of as a constellation of, of thought together. And so the things they'll be dis answering for us are these. Um, they're going to be describing a momentous political event that occurred in their country and how Christianity has been a public witness in that context. And then stepping back to a broader question of how do politics interact with Christianity in your country's context? What's the role of Christianity, would you say, in the public sphere? And then thirdly, what lessons can we learn from what happened or is happening there? How should the church have responded, in your opinion? Um, what's your prophetic imagination about the future of your country? And what do you think American Christians can learn from your context? Very academic thing to have one question in five parts. So we're going to begin with Dwight, and I'm delighted to turn the stage over to him. All right. Thank you very much. Um, in answering those questions, I thought it's important to maybe give a bit of background of uh, some of some of the uh, contacts or the situations that I've been in. I've, I've been privileged to be part of senior leadership in the church and also with a leadership or a, a, um, a school institute offering a master's in leadership and management. So um, since the 1980s, I've been with Faith Ministries, a charismatic Pentecostal church in Zimbabwe. And uh, 2003, I, I was seconded to, a, to an institution called Africa Leadership and Management Academy. And I've been working there. It's an international organization. We've got contacts in different parts of Africa. And basically through these two institutions, I have interacted, I've had the privilege of interacting with some key African leaders who are Christians. Um, on a personal level, I've interacted with a man called Nervous Mumba in, uh, in Zambia. He was vice president of Zambia for some years, uh, an evangelist. He was trained at Christ for the Nations Institute, uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, he, was, he was at the same, same college as, as, as my, my bishop. Um, so that's how I got to know him. I even visited his home um, in, 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 in Zambia. Um, so that's one of the privileges I've had to interact at that level with the former vice president of Zambia. I've also interacted with uh, Pierre Nkurunziza, uh, the late Pierre Nkurunziza. He was the Burundi president, a very ardent and overt Christian leader, and he was not ashamed of proclaiming his faith in public. He made his mistakes, um, uh, even in that public office. And um, yeah, so I'll, I'll get back to Pierre Nkurunzinza shortly. Then we've got Chiluba. I don't, I don't know him personally, but uh, Frederick Chiluba declared Zambia a Christian nation when he became the president of Zambia. And also he was a preacher at some point. Again, he did not end well. 
Lazarus Chakwera. He's now the current president of Malawi, and uh, Lazarus Chakwera has got an Assemblies of God background. He was um, lecturing in Bible schools. He's a theological, he's got a doctoral level theology degrees. Um, he was the president of the Assemblies of God before getting into politics and eventually becoming the president of Malawi. Now, when you look at that, I think it just illustrates or it should illustrate the levels at which African leaders who are coming directly from the churches and even from church leadership are becoming prominent political leaders. Um, and some of the ways in which we've been able to influence some of that, for example, in, uh, in, in Burundi, just last year, just before he died, uh, Nkurunzinza resigned, or he stepped down as the president of Burundi. This was a very significant thing, because he became president in 2005, and um, he, he finished 10 years, but then his understanding was that, or that's what he said to us, his understanding was that his second office was starting in 2015, because he um, they drafted the new constitution in his first term of office. So, whereas everyone was thinking he's going for the third term, he thought he was going for the second term. So there was a lot of controversy, bloodshed, and all sorts of things that happened um, that caused that. And then what happened is, after he became president for the third term, there was a groundswell that actually um, would have enabled him to be life president. People had changed the constitution so that he could continue for as long as he wanted. We prevailed on him to step down um, through some friends who were in close contact with, with the president who were able to influence him and to tell him, no, don't do that. He stepped down and just maybe a month after he stepped down, he died and uh, handed, but uh, there was a good transition of power in that instance. In Africa and Zimbabwe, politics and spirituality are closely intertwined. And in fact, there's an, even a thinking of, you know, if you want political power, you need to have some spiritual backing of some sort. So it's not very difficult to, you know, to make that connection for us as Africans. And we, you tend to see that Christianity and people don't see, don't see a difference between being a Christian leader and seeking um, spiritual authority or, or having um, a good spiritual base from which to, to, to operate. Um, to, so right now we've got Nelson Chamisa. Nelson Chamisa is an opposition leader, is the most prominent opposition leader who could become president. He's still in the running. Nelson Chamisa has gone through apostolic faith mission. One of, my, one of my colleagues, the principal of the apostolic faith mission, actually advised me that Nelson Chamisa is an ordained minister. He did three years, finished, and he's running for office, uh, and you know, he's, reading, he's leading the, the opposition party. The thing that I can say from this, just uh, as I want to close now, 
is as we talk about, about this, um, one, of the, one of the contacts that I've had or that I've made recently is a former minister who was fired by the former president, Mugabe, um, and she ended up in my office and saying she didn't know what, what next and managed to connect her with some of the network that I have uh, in Africa, and she became one of the, or she's been teaching there. Right now, she's actually come up with what we call, what she's calling Politics 101, the basics for Christians who want to get into politics. And I think what we need to do, and what, that's something like what I feel we need to do, disciple people and help them as they move into political office or if they want to run for political office. Thank you. I think that's really fascinating. I wanted to ask about, I'm glad you concluded with the idea of politics one-on-one, -on -one. her attempt to help Christians who want to venture into politics avoid some of the basic mistakes they naively make. Are those mistakes political and spiritual, or how do you see the, her faith informing sort of that, that class she's teaching? Right. Um, she actually describes the people that she's seen running for political office as naive, and they just don't know what they are walking into. And uh, maybe, you know, just coming from the church, idealistic and not knowing the grassroots and how to, to, to work from the grassroots. That's number one. And then, of course, number two is when you get into public office, not realizing that, um, you know, your spiritual life or your, um, what you do in private is, is, is public now, and especially as you're a Christian leader. So some of the most basic mistakes that have been made is that um, they walk into there and they just, by their testimony, blow themselves up. What would you say is your, I love the phrase in these questions, the prophetic imagination about the future of your country in terms of how this spiritually, politically, and the obvious overlap for you all there? I, I, see, I see this direction and this trend as something that is going to be happening, whether we like it or not, for better or for worse, our Christian leaders are going to be going this direction, or we're going to be finding that more and more people within our sphere are actually going to go into this. 80% of, uh, of Zimbabweans uh, identify as Christians. Christianity is vibrant. As we know, sub-Saharan Africa, Christianity has become more and more dominant, and especially Pentecostal charismatic Christianity. And it's just natural that these, this is going to be the reality of what we need to expect in the future. And what we need is a deliberate process of preparing leaders for future generations uh, of Africa. I think if the church does not get into this and does not, does not uh, do this, then we are liable for whatever then happens on the continent because they are coming from our churches and they are our product. I think... The question I'd like to hear you expand on also is, what do you think American Christians can learn from this? It's a great, I mean, to, 
especially where the, the conversations here in our country are, are so conflicted about these two, the overlap of these areas. Yeah. I, I, would, I would describe American Christianity, I think what's, it's a mistake that I'm seeing also within our context where um, the church becomes a tool, a political tool um, in some ways. So it's a constituency that is useful for politicians, whichever side. So they, they actually want to co-opt the church into their agenda. Whereas I think for us as Christian, um, as Christian leaders, we need to go in there with an understanding that Jesus is Lord of my life and over whatever else might be happening in the nation. So instead of the Lordship of Christ being the, the thing that, that drives us, we are finding that we are trying, the church is being made or is being pushed down to the level of being a political tool. So what we need, I, I would say, this discipleship process to deliberately prepare, much as what I've been talking about, deliberately prepare people who are going to be, uh, who are in our churches, who are going to be in political leadership of some sort. How are we discipling them? And how are we helping them? Even as they are walking in that, do they have accountability? Do they have mentors? Do they have people that, um, that, that help them as they go through this process? Thank you so much. Um, I'd like to hear from Rania Hendy now and her context in Egypt. So, um, Politics have always affected the Christian community in Egypt, but the most momentous and most recent political event uh, that affected Christianity but also gave them the opportunity to be public witness was the events that happened during the years of 2011 through 2013, during the time which people like to call the Arab Spring. And to give you a background, uh, the Arab Spring started in Tunisia in December 2010, and it ended up very quickly and very successfully by uh, forcing the president to abdicate his position and to flee. This quick change of the regime inspired many activists in Egypt who also wanted and longed for that kind of change. So um, we did our first demonstration, and it took only 18 days to, for the president and for his regime to be outstead. That, of course, brought great joy for many of the Egyptians, but in particular, the Christians, who felt like they finally relieved after long history of oppression, persecution, and discrimination. But also they saw this as an opportunity for uh, participating in building a new democratic Egypt. Unfortunately though, with freedom came the rise of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood as a political force. And the Muslim Brotherhood is an Islamic extremist political party. In 2012, uh, Mohamed Morsi, who is the candidate of this Muslim Brotherhood party, won the presidential election. And of course, Christians knew that tough times were ahead. 
and we were right. Unprecedented attacks on Christians and Christian churches increased with growing disregard to the rule of the law. Uh, the Christians were greatly alarmed, but not only the Christians, but also the moderate Muslims, because during that time, there were, there were increasing violations of the law, political violations, violence, drastic deterioration of the lives of the citizens. So there was a calling for another demonstration, but this time a nationwide demonstration. And of course, they threatened the Christian more than anyone else. So they threatened them to be killed and their churches to be burned down if they took to the streets. I'm talking, of course, about the extremists. The church had two responses at that time. The first response was, I had the first slide. It is on. Okay. Let's see it here. The church called for standing in the gap for the nation. Prayer meetings and fasting days were organized by all the churches throughout the country. And we had something similar to what we have in the book of Esther, where the Jews were praying for their survival. But unlike what we have in the book of, uh, in the book of Esther, where the Jews were praying for their own survival because that was the situation, Christians didn't call for the protection of Christians but we called for praying for the nation, protection of Muslims and Christians and the deliverance of the country. Um, for the first time during that time, all Christian denominations, Catholic, Protestant, Coptic Orthodox Church, united together. They set aside all their differences and came together to plead with the Lord for our country. And uh, um, beside the prayer meetings that were organized throughout the churches, the church also called for a huge gathering where all Christians can come and pray together. And um, I had a video, but we told, oh, it worked. So this is a glimpse of that night. Although this night was at risk of potential terrorist attacks, 55,000 Christians, and some people say 80,000, gathered together to pray for our country. That was a moving moment, and uh, it was a very great witness, because that was on TV, everybody saw it, the Muslims saw it, and saw how um, we appeared during dangerous time to cry out for God, and which of course the moderate Muslims wanted. They want the deliverance of the country, so they need all prayers, uh, no matter who would pray at that time. the first response of the church but the second response was that nothing will hinder us from doing what is right and from doing what we 
need to do in order to have uh, to see the prosperity of the country and the welfare of the country. So right after this, we had our nationwide demonstration, the biggest demonstration we had throughout our history. And of course, the prominent figures in that, that participated very actively during that time were the Christians. Um, it was so easy to remove the regime and, his, uh, and the president because of the assistance of the military. And that also brought great joy to all the, the Egyptians. But on the other hand, the fury of the Muslim Brotherhood was greatly enraged. So in one day, they burned out. Can I have the slides to show you? Um, so this is one of the churches. They burned out about 48 church and Christian churches and Christian institution as that at that um, night in that night. And of course, the Christians did not retaliate, and instead they offered a message of forgiveness and hope for a future. Um, on, on that same night, Pope Tawadros II, who is the leader of the Coptic Church, uh, was interviewed and he appeared on the TV saying this amazing, moving statement, which I can't see from here. <laughs> uh, not yet. <laughs> If the destruction of these properties is the price Christians in Egypt have to pay to get a free Egypt, then that sacrifice is worthwhile. The church offered a great uh, witness during that time. First of all, everybody, it was clear to everybody that the true church of God is not the building. The true, the true church of God is his people and nothing will hinder us from worshiping our God. So that was right next, the next day, Christians came back to worship God in the midst of the ruins, as you can see. But also the church witnessed that uh, they, they are so patriots and they are so loyal to the country and they can offer their, their prayers, but also offer any sacrifice that will lead to the prosperity of the nation. Um, of course, after that, the months following, uh, Egypt started to um, become more stable again, but our participatory democracy and the dreams that we dreamt about is still placed on hold and is still aspirational goals but we will keep praying. Thank you so much. The, those visuals are really astounding. Um, I wanted to ask, it's very interesting the way you described the idea of the, the Christians, not just the variety of denominations, but coming together to raise voices of hope and prayer for this goal. Did it, did it seem like for the, the Christian community it was sort of a natural this is what we will, this is what we should be doing in the situation. Was there a lot of discussion to get to that? Or how did the church decide to uh, raise its voice for this sort of more sec, what some people might consider a more secular goal? I'm interested how, or was it just a very natural thing to do? I guess that was very natural to do. Not like nobody Absolutely. thought about 
they didn't sit together and try to negotiate their differences. No, they set aside everything and it was completely natural. And I guess also that wasn't only um, in, the, in, uh, in the area of um, the church leaders, but also our homes. So we live in tall buildings and I remember every building would gather together in just in one, ho in one house and pray, pray for, for uh, hours for the country. So I guess that was very natural. Um, how, talk about your, your, um, the partnerships you may have had with the moderate Muslims. This seemed to be something that y'all were uniting across religious lines on your desires for the country. Were there, were there, did you try to, were there ways you worked together or did everyone sort of support in their own way? But um, did you, how did you and the more moderate Muslim groups interact with one another? Now or during that time? During that time. During and is that, that it's, um, we in general are in good terms together, except in certain areas, in poorer areas and in villages where sometimes they would persecute Christians and force them to leave their houses and burn down their house. But I would also call those people extremists, not the moderate Christians. But during that time, I guess um, our love for the country make us also like set aside our different beliefs and um, because we, we sense that it's a very dangerous moment. That year that the Muslim Brotherhood ruled was really horrible and we couldn't imagine that they would stay for longer than that. So we had to do something. When you talk about the, the way that you all came together very publicly and spontaneously to support during this time of upheaval, how have you, how's the church there negotiated that moving forward in terms of, is there a sense of how to interact with the day-to-day -day politics there? Um, it seemed like you had a very large sense of, during this moment, we are going to respond in this very public way. How has that transitioned through the years? through that time also, right? Or through the years. So they called for, during that time, they, there were representatives from different institutions. And of course, Pope Tawadros was the representative of the church in Egypt. And they would gather together and discuss what we should do, right? And that was under the leadership of the military, who of course, without the military, that time couldn't have achieved a lot because, um, they changed it, the Muslim Brotherhood changed it, the constitution as soon as they ruled to have the rules, to, to have them rule forever. So there was no way that we can leave them for four years and then we have to have another presidential election. And that's why the military has to do that. But the military wouldn't have, couldn't have done that without the packing of the, all the Egyptians because that would be a military coup. This is a really fascinating story. I appreciate very much your sharing it with us. Thank you, Anya. And then last we have our David Moe, who's going to be sharing from his context in Myanmar. Hello. Let me say three words first. First, thanks to all friends for organizing this uh, panel. Second, thanks to uh, Dr. Kennedy for moderating this panel. Third, thanks to all the audience, all the listeners, 
Without the listeners, there could be no panelists. Thank you so much. So we have mutual credits, right? Um, okay. And you see? Yes, one faith, three Christian groups in one country. Even though we are coming from different ethnicities, different denominations, just only one faith. Right? That is Ephesians chapter 4, see, right? One faith, one baptism, one Lord. Even though there, there is only one faith, but the way they witness their faith are different from one another, diverse. It's not just one dimension. That's important to highlight. And before I go to that, let me briefly tell you what Myanmar is, because many American people don't know where Myanmar is. When I was in Minnesota, some of my American friends thought Myanmar was part of Scandinavia. That's not true. So Myanmar is located in Southeast Asia, just next to Thailand. Thailand is more famous than my country, of course. So Myanmar is in Southeast Asia, just next to Thailand. And Myanmar is a unique country, not in a good way, in a bad way. Um, we gained independence from British in 1948. That was over 70 years ago. And we uh, enjoyed just a short period of democracy. But later on, the military took power, ruled, and ruined the country for more than 60 years until today. Imagine that. If you live in that kind of military country, what kind of Christian you would like to be? That's the first thing we have to think. So uh, in 1962, the military took, took power and ruled the country until now. And the way how Christians respond to that moment was diverse from one another. That's why I, I said, one faith, three Christian group, okay? As a Presbyterian, I almost always like three points. Three points, okay? The first Christian group are politicians. Politicians, purely politicians. So in the context where you live, with this dictatorship, military, you have one option. You have to defend your Christian faith. You have to defend your ethnic minority group, right? So Myanmar is a Buddhist country, dominantly Buddhist country, but they are a minority Christian group, which are found among minority ethnic groups. That's why I call it Christianity is the majority religion of minority ethnic groups. So those minority groups choose to be a politicians. Some of them choose to be a rebel using the weapons to fight against the army. Those are really politicians, okay? And in that first group, there could also be uh, Christian politicians. Purely they are politicians. They are not they are Christian, but not quite a church people. They are really politicians. For them, that is the only option to uh, defend against their ethnic Christian identity. You have to defend against the army, the weapons with the weapons, right? That's a rebel, right? The ethnic rebels. That is the first, the first uh, Christian group. And there is also the second group. The second group is unlike the first group. A, a political. Christian they are not interested in politics. A, a political, right? That's anti-politics, right? For them, politics is a messy, it's dirty. This is something uh, not for Christians. They still believe that. And for them, is evangelism is more important than politics. And clearly, there's a dichotomy 
between the politics and faith in that second group. That is apolitical. So uh, for these people, they don't want to be involved in the politics. For them, politics, only the politicians have to be po uh, involved in that politics. That is for uh, the second group is thinking. And these people also have like this dichotomy between uh, faith and politics, this world and other worldies. They focus more on other worldies than this present world. This kind of things is really happening in the second group of Christianity. Let me move to the third group, and then we'll find which group I belong to. <laughs> the third group is a mix of both lay Christians or grass Christians and some academic theologians. I will call them those are prophetic and priestly Christians. Prophetic means they resist, they protest against social evil. They clearly see Moses as the best example for them. Okay? Moses, you are from Egypt, you tell me more about Moses. <laughs> no matter whether they know him well or not, they just want to be Moses. They want to be prophetic against this social evil, this dictatorship. And somehow, there are some more lay Christians in that third group. They are not quite vocal. The way they resist dictatorship is sometimes invisible. Let me borrow the word from my friend, James Scott from Yale University. The way they resist these political powers is not always visible. There could be some many reasons why that is invisible. Partly because they fear. As I said earlier, Myanmar is a military country. If you really want to resist, you have to be brave enough. You have to be brave enough. Because the military, they have a weapon. You don't have any weapon. It's not easy to, to protest against those dictatorships. So some lay Christians, the way they witness the Christian faith is not quite vocal as some academic people like us. Like us, we have intellectual power. We have authority to say anything in the public. But some lay Christians, somehow, they want to resist vocally, but somehow, the way they resist is hidden, invisible, or implicit, I would put it. So I belong to this third group. That's why this is something very helpful for, for my future of ministry and theological imagination. So in that third group, sometimes we academic theologians trying to put our um, ideas or impose our ideas on the lay people instead of revealing or exposing how this lay Christian witness in, in the private, even in the public. So the way we witness Christians in this third group is not always public sometimes. Sometimes in a private way. Here, we are witnessing crime in a private way. It's not in private. It's not in public. This is private. We pray. We worship God. So we really need to integrate private and public when we witness Christian faith. That's really my interest. Sometimes, I mean, this dichotomy, I don't know whether we adopt this from the Western Enlightenment. I'm not sure. Maybe that is true. We need to integrate private and public, spirituality and social activity. We really need to integrate these two things. If we do that, that would be the best theology. Okay, um, so let me uh, conclude this uh, panel with the recent uh, movement in my country. So some of uh, you might know my country. On the 1st of February, just last month, the military coup took power 
by detaining many civilian political leaders, including Aung San Suu Kyi, who is the first and only Nobel Peace Prize winner in our nation. They detain her and many civilian leaders, including some uh, peaceful protesters. They detain all of them. Now, I don't know exactly how many people. Every day they detain them. That is the real moment, or that is the real kairos in Greek word. Kairos, the moment happening in our country now. Some of them, some of you have already known that. So in that situation, some Christians, those who used to be vocal in the past, becomes more vocal now. The way they witness Christian faith is more prophetic. You see, here, some Christian leaders, right? Can you see them? Now you see? Those are some Christian leaders. In the past, they feel that, well, we don't necessarily need to be uh, uh, protesting in the public. But now, they have no option. They just go to the street to demonstrate against the military power. Again, here, demonstration in Myanmar is not like demonstration here in the US. Completely different. Here, you demonstrate peacefully. You will come back home in peace. In Myanmar, when you go to the street to demonstrate against military, not sure that you are coming back alive. Not sure. So the military and the police shoot many of these peaceful protesters. Many people die every day. That's why one of the, uh, one of the ladies, uh, who is very young, just 19 years old, who passed away yesterday, shot dead by the police on her head. What she said is, she said goodbye to her parents. Her word really touched, sorry. Uh, this is her word. If my body was wounded, could not be brought back to good conditions, don't save me. But if you see some parts are still good, donate my good party to someone who needs it. That is her last words to her parents. She went to the street, she got shot dead. So, I mean, let me uh, conclude this one, then you have more questions. Witnessing Christian faith in a military country is never easy. Never easy, it's very risky. If you go to the street to demonstrate against, dying, or maybe alive, we don't know. So what we have to learn, including myself, is not just American Christians, what we have to learn from Christians in our country is to be a faithful follower of Christ. It's easier to be a faithful Christian in a good country, right? It's never easy to be a good follower of Christ in those suffering countries, really concrete suffering countries. So thanks so much for listening to this panel, and you might have more questions. I wanted to, um, I really can't think of how to follow that. <laughs> um, but I wanted to make sure that we had, I, wanted, I meant to ask Ronya, and I wanted to ask Ronya and David the question that I had posed to Dwight. What is the word you feel God might be having you to share with American Christians? Um, just born out, of, born out of the experiences that God has placed you within. 
what, what do you feel like we might need to learn from your experience and your context as American Christians? In Myanmar? Well, yeah, yes, from your experience in Myanmar and the things that the church is being faithful with. But. First, even though there's a lot of persecutions among Christians in our country, Christianity is still flourishing. No declining. Okay? It, this is not, ha- not just in Myanmar. This is what's happening in the global south. Persecution is a daily experience of our life, but Christianity never declining, always flourishing. Amen? That we have to learn from our brothers and sisters from the global south, including my own country. Uh, second, living in that situation, we have to learn from them about faithful presence, faithful witness. They are always faithful. They remain faithful despite those political situations that we have to learn from them. And second, or maybe third, maybe, um, somehow we also need to learn from them about integrating this, as uh, my brother uh, Dwight has said, integrating spirituality and politics is also something we have to learn from them. Not all the Christians in those regions divorce, you know, faith and this politics. Somehow they integrate, like integrate, you know, synthesize. That we have to learn from them. Thank you. I guess we have the boldness to share our faith with others, but we don't have the freedom for that. You have all the freedom, but I think, I might be mistaken, but I think that same freedom is the same thing which is hindering you from being bold enough to share the gospel with everyone. Take the advantage of the freedom, the grace of the freedom that you have, because this is... This is the dream of our country and the dream of many countries, and you have it. Take the advantage of the freedom that you have and mix it with a little bit of boldness, resting assured that this boldness will be derived from the Holy Spirit, who promised that Christ promised us that he will give us the wisdom and the the words at at that time. So I guess that's my advice for you, and um, thank you for the panel, and thank you for the, the opportunity for sharing this with you. I'm just delighted by the uh, opportunity to be up here, and what's so fabulous is that these folks aren't going anywhere. They're here on campus, so we can, these are great things we can follow up on um, to sit at their feet and learn from our brothers Dwight and David and our sister Nadia, and just, um, Rania, I'm sorry. Um, so I just wanted to um, send us out with a prayer that uh, expresses a gratitude for the, the good gifts that God has brought to us here at Asbury that oftentimes we, we don't always remember that we are blessed with a, such a tremendous wealth of experience and wisdom and passion as we have up on the stage today. So if you'd bow your heads with me, let's, uh, let's cover our gathering in prayer. Lord, it can be difficult to know how to live into the particular gifts and graces that you've given us uh, to fully understand the freedoms we've been given, to know how to be bold in your name and for your sake. Lord, we're deeply grateful for the faithfulness of our brothers and sister here gathered with us. Um, and we know that this is just but one snapshot of 
your tremendous presence around, around our world. Lord, um, help us to continue to go into the world with fresh eyes, with hearts and ears that are open to learn from you and are excited to see you in places we may not expect and to hear words we may not expect to have heard. So send us out this week and in the months and years to come uh, with boldness, being prophetic and priestly, and always um, striving ever to be faithful. In your son's holy name, we pray these things. Amen.